0: We're continuing our teaching series on the Minor Prophets, looking at the book of Hosea today, the book of Hosea. On the uh, screen, you see a photograph of my wife, Monisa's parents, Jack and Mabel. Uh, she was up there in August, one of her trips to check on them since her mother uh, entered the nursing home this summer, and and uh, they recently turned 88 and 86, and I, I put that up, I showed that recently at one of our business luncheons because I think it's the goal that all of us who are married have is to be in our 80s holding hands with the love of our life. Isn't that a great goal to have is to be, you know, isn't, isn't it? Yeah. And I, I know these, these families that were, you know, taking part in the dedication earlier today, love. And we just want to see it deepen and see it prosper and see it grow. I remember when Monisa and I were dating, there was a, a small picture that was in, in the living room. And it was there for years. Uh, it was from their 25th wedding anniversary. And I guess that just kind of stuck in my mind Because her experience was somewhat different than mine. Um, I've got a book here that uh, was published by our Southern Baptist Convention's Home Mission Board, now North American Mission Board, in 1977, titled More Than Just Talk. It's a book that uh, uh, has features on about five uh, servants, five ministers in Baptist life at that time who were doing some great evangelistic work. And one of those was Bill Mackie. ...at my home church in Kentucky. He's my mentor, the one who baptized and ordained me. And there's a few paragraphs where I'm interviewed in this, in this story. And um, I was 18, a, a freshman at Cumberland College. And at that time, I had not yet become a pastor. That would be in just a few months... But I was their bus pastor. We had a large bus ministry, about 12 buses, and I was over all of that and did children. If y'all can believe it or not, I did children's church on Sunday. I know that cracked some of y'all up, but yeah, I did. That, that was my, part of my, my, first, uh, my first job in church was children's church and a bus pastor. And um, um, But anyway, I, I, I share this with you because this book this book reminds me of a day that was painful. Now, the story is great, okay? But I I remember I was sitting on one of those church buses being interviewed by the person who wrote this. And during the interview, my sister pulled into the church parking lot. It was unusual. It was a Saturday morning. She got out and went to the entrance of the church. And so I got off the bus and went to her. We had a brief conversation, and that's when she told me that she and Mom had just caught Dad with another woman at a local hotel. And the truth is... The decisions you and I make in life shape our life. They make it. They determine what it is. Whether it's our marriage, our career, our family, the decisions we make day to day determine our life. Life's just made up of decisions. It really is. And that, that, that same thing is true spiritually. The decisions you make are going to shape your relationship not only with your with your spouse and with your kids, with your family, the decisions you make are going to shape your relationship with Jesus Christ. They're going to shape your walk with God. In the, the New Testament, marriage is used as an analogy, if you will, as a symbol of the relationship Jesus has with the church. In the Old Testament, marriage is used as a picture of God's relationship with the people of uh, the Jewish people, the people of Israel, the nation of, of Israel, and the book of Hosea in particular focuses on that that marriage-type relationship between God and His people. So, if you have your Bible, I invite you to open it with me to the book of Hosea uh, in the Old Testament. The book of Hosea. Now, Hosea preached at the same time as Amos and and Isaiah. Which means he was living and preaching during a time of economic prosperity, uh, expansion of the nation's borders. It was good times, so to speak. But as we've already seen in the book of Amos, it was a time of economic corruption, political corruption, legal corruption, religious corruption, moral corruption. Sounds a lot like modern America, doesn't it? I mean, they, they had a lot of stuff, but they were really messed up. And while Amos only preached for about a year, Hosea probably preached about 50 or 60 years. He saw a lot. He preached for a long, long time. And when he describes the relationship between God and the people of Israel as a marriage, that God is the husband and the people of Israel are the wife, his message is that you've been unfaithful to your husband. You've been unfaithful to God. And through all of their unfaithfulness, God loved them. God loved them with an incredible love. And their story and Hosea's story can speak to you and me, can teach you and me. About how special it really is to have a relationship with God. But that we... Can be unfaithful to God, just like a husband can be unfaithful to his wife, a wife unfaithful to her husband. The nation of Israel unfaithful to God. You can be unfaithful to Jesus. You can cheat on Jesus, and He's going to love you. He's going to love you, but you can you can hurt Him. You can cheat on Him. You can be unfaithful to Him. And so I want us to look at the story of Amos because while. Or of Hosea rather, while, while Amos focused on all the social injustices and Hosea mentions them, Hosea focuses on two very specific sins that caused Israel to be unfaithful to God and how God loved them in spite of it, even when they were suffering the consequences of their sin. So I want us to pick the story up in Hosea chapter 1. So look in chapter 1 of your Bible, please. Hosea chapter 1. The first verse just tells us when he was preaching. Now, verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry. For the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer. God comes to Hosea, and he says, Go marry a woman. And he goes and marries her. Now this is written retrospectively, so it doesn't necessarily mean she was a a prostitute when he married her but she would later be unfaithful and would actually become a prostitute so he goes and marries this woman gomer now, now imagine he already knows how it's going to turn out you know we said the goal is to be in your 80s holding hands with the love of your life these these families want a great future for their family and and when the kids grow up and leave home they want to have a great marriage after that Hosea knew that when he married Gomer, she was the kind of woman that was going to cheat him. He already knew the outcome, that she would become unfaithful. She would become a prostitute. She would have children by other men. And through all of that, he loved her like a husband was supposed to love his wife. And his marriage, his relationship with his wife became a symbol, an object lesson, if you will of God's love for Israel and how Israel was treating God. It's also a picture of God's love for you and me and how sometimes we treat him by cheating on him, by being unfaithful to him. She gives birth to three children. The first one we know was Hosea's child because it says so. The other two we we don't know for certain, may not have been because she had become unfaithful. But if you'll pick the story up, at the end of verse 3, she bore him a son. And the Lord said to Hosea, name him Jezreel. In a little while, I'll punish the house of Jehu. And at the end of verse 4, put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. The word Jezreel, the Hebrew word, means to scatter. And God, by telling Hosea to name his firstborn son Jezreel to be scattered, is saying to the people of Israel, just symbolically, it's an object lesson, he's saying to them, because of your unfaithfulness, because of your sin, you as a nation, as a people, are going to be scattered to other places. And the house of Israel will be scattered at the end of verse 4. A few years later, in 722 B.C., the Assyrian army conquered the northern kingdom and deported the people of Israel as slaves to other nations. And what Hosea had preached what happened what happened actually happened the house of Jehu Jer- Jeroboam was the king during Hosea's ministry. he was a descendant of Jehu. when Jehu became king in Israel he executed anyone and everyone who was a political opponent. Anybody that he thought was a threat to his rule they were dead just like the you know the the, the nut over in North Korea today. And so God said, because of that, Jeroboam, you, your family, your lineage, your, your kingdom, it's, it's, it's going to end in bloodshed just like you got it. Well, she becomes pregnant again. And in verse 6, gives birth to a daughter. And God says to Hosea, name this little girl Loruamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel. Her name is a combination of two words, the Hebrew prefix lo, which means no or not. Ruama means pity or compassion and God through naming that little girl is teaching the people of Israel because of your sin I'm still going to love you but when you begin suffering the consequences of your decisions when you begin enduring all the pain that comes because of the way you're living I'm not going to have pity and compassion and step in and fix it for you you chose that path you're going to live that path you're going to experience that path and all that comes i'm going to love you and if you'll repent i'll forgive you and heal you but if you choose to keep going down that path unrepentant then i'm not i'm not going to be one of those you know you know how spouses or parents or family can can sometimes be enablers because of pity and we're trying to help but in the end we're actually hurting god says i'm not going to have pity and and jump in there and fix it not if you choose to live that way Well, she becomes pregnant and has a third child, a little boy, at the end of verse 8. And then in verse 9, God says, name him Lo -um Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Lo, again, the prefix, no or not, um Ami, my people. You're not my people anymore because of your rebellion, because of your unfaithfulness. You need to remember that in the book of Exodus when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments on behalf of the people of Israel. And established his covenant with the Jewish people. Here's what God actually said. Go back and read it in Exodus. He said. If. If. You obey me. If. You keep my commandments. Then. It's conditional. If. Then. I will be your God. And you will be my people. But. If you don't. I won't. And so here God is saying through the name given to this third child, saying to the people of the northern kingdom of Israel, because of your unfaithfulness, because of your adultery against God, as a nation, as a people, I'm saying, lo, I mean, no longer my people. Later in the book of Hosea, in chapter uh, 2, verse 23, and I think I've got it on the screen for you, God says to the people of Israel, He says, I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. Now remember in Hosea, it's it's the analogy, it's the metaphor of God being the husband and Israel, the nation being the wife. And God is saying to His wife, to Israel, I'm going to have compassion on another woman who to this point has not had my compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, You are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Do you know who quoted that verse in the New Testament? Peter. In the book of 1 Peter. In describing the relationship between the New Testament church and Jesus Christ. We were not his people. But now we are his people. It's the same argument the Apostle Paul makes in the book of Romans. And so God is saying, through Hosea's marriage and through the naming of these children, that Israel has been unfaithful. And judgment is coming as a result. But you're going to also see the love of God. But before we get to that, I want to make clear what their two sins were. What were the two sins that they were so guilty of that caused God to say, Name these kids this so that the people of Israel can understand what I'm saying to them about the response, the, 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 the consequences of their sin. Here's the first one. Their first sin was idolatry. Now you may not think that applies to you and me because we don't carve little wooden idols and set them on the mantle at the house and you know, bend our knee and worship an idol. But we can be very guilty of idolatry. Look in Hosea chapter 2 at verse 13. Okay, Hosea chapter 2 verse 13. God is, again remember he's referring to Israel as his wife, as her. I will punish her for the days of the Baals, the pagan gods of the neighboring nations that the Jewish people began worshiping along with the worship of God, kind of co-mingling them, if you will. They offered sacrifices to them, wore the earrings and jewelry, the clothing of that pagan religion. And he said, and they follow her lovers so that she forgot, me, declares the Lord. See, part of idolatry is as simple as forgetting God when it comes to how you live. Forgetting God When it comes to the decisions you make. Look at chapter 4, verse 12. He said, my people consult their wooden idol and their diviner's wand informs them. What what, what is he saying there? He's saying when they need some instruction, they need some direction. When they need some help making decisions. When they, they need some insight, understanding how to live and what decisions to make and how to go about things and what to think and what to believe. When they're wanting guidance, they don't turn to me. They turn to these pagan religions, to the Baals. They worship these idols. He said the result of that is in verse 12 that a spirit of harlotry, unfaithfulness, prostitution, adultery has led them astray. And they have played the harlot departing from their God. Now like I said, you and I are not going to have any kind of little statuettes around the house we get on our knees and bow to. Some people in the world do that, but we don't do that, right? Average American won't do that. But let me ask you a question. Who do you listen to when it comes to determining what you think is wrong and right? Who do you listen to when you need to make an important decision? Who do you listen to when you're trying to identify the priorities of your life, who do you listen to? When you're trying to teach your kids uh, the right view of the world and the right view of life, they were turning to these idols and to these pagan religions for their worldview, for their guidance. Who do you turn to? Who, who do you listen listen to? Ha- have you forgotten God and turned from His Word? D- do you listen to the Word of God? Do you listen to the voice of God? Or do you listen to all these other voices out here in our culture? All these other voices in our world. Who who are you listening to? Who's informing you and shaping you? Because God is saying, if you're not listening to Him, you're not listening to His Word. His Word is not shaping your view of things and how you go about living. That's idolatry because you're following the voice of some other God, some other idol, some other person. But it's not God. And that is idolatry. And there are too many times, if we're honest, we have to acknowledge we're guilty of doing that. How many times have you heard someone say, I, I know the Bible says, but? Have you ever said that? I, I, know, I know the Bible says that, but? It's idolatry. It's idolatry. Their second sin was a lack of faith. A lack of faith. Look in chapter 5, at verse 13. When Ephraim saw his sickness, Ephraim is another name for the northern kingdom of Israel, also sometimes referred to as Samaria. When Ephraim saw his sickness, all the, all the suffering, because God over the years had been trying to get their attention, he had judged them, things that happened. You know, like parents sometimes, you know, you discipline your kids, you put them on restriction, you take this away. You, you, to get their, trying to get them to, you, you, any of your parents ever done that? Huh? Yeah. God was doing that with Israel. And when when Israel saw all this stuff, all their sickness and Judah, his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria. Rather rather than turning to God, they turned to another nation to fix their problems. And and throughout the book of Hosea, that's mentioned several times. It's just one verse where it's it's listed. You remember when they had their first king, Saul. They wanted a king. God told them not that he didn't want them to have a king. He was their king. But the nation of Israel said, we want to be like all the other nations around us. They have kings, we want kings. We want our political system to mimic their political system. Because God, we just don't have enough confidence in you. We just don't have enough trust in you. We just don't have enough faith in you that we can get by as a nation without us having a, a king like everybody else. And how many times in life do you, do you want to be like everybody else? How many times in life do you want to take control? And even though God is saying do it this way, you're saying, God, I hear you, but God, I'm I'm not going to do that. God, I'm going to take control and fix it my way. Do it my way. Because God, the truth is, God, I really don't have enough faith in you, enough confidence in you that you can take care of it your way. So i got to do it my way. Are you ever guilty of that, that approach to living? And what God is saying to the the Jewish people in the northern kingdom of Israel that their idolatry and their lack of faith is synonymous with a a woman cheating on her husband. He's he's saying, you're cheating on me. You're being unfaithful to me. You're, you're, You're becoming a prostitute. You're running after others and not being loyal to me. In chapter 6, verse 4, he said their loyalty was like the dew. You ever, you ever seen dew glisten on the grass in the morning, but it, it goes away quickly, doesn't it? And you have those, those brief moments of, of glistening faith, those brief moments of, of glistening obedience, those, those brief moments of glistening loyalty. But as soon as the sun comes up, it's gone. I'll never do it again, and then you do it again. What does god look for in his wife what does god look for in us well chapter 6 verse 6 he said i delight in loyalty in loyalty rather than sacrifice some bibles may translate that as mercy or love or compassion it's the hebrew word chesed it's, it's a special word in the old testament referring to God's covenant love with the people of Israel it's like when a man and a woman become husband and wife there's a special relationship that's created and there's there's a special kind of love and 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 it's more than just the emotions it's the kind of love that says yes I feel this stuff but it's the kind of love that says I'm going to be loyal to you I'm going to be faithful to you It's the kind of love that says, when you need compassion, I'm going to give you compassion. When you need strength, I'm going to give you strength. I'm going to be there for you. I am devoted, dedicated, committed. It's not just emotion. It's a love that says, you can count on me. And God says, if you want to know what I really want from my people, it's that. It's not sacrifice. It's not just religious ritual. Because religious ritual sacrifice without loyalty to God is empty and useless. It's hollow. And he said, I want knowledge of God more than burnt offerings or religious ritual. Now, knowledge of God means more than just in your head knowing stuff about God. This word means you know about God through experience with God. How many of you have been married long enough, and and, uh, we've been married 34 years, and you start figuring out after after a while that that if you really do love the right way, guess what? You know what each other's thinking a lot of times, right? You, You can complete what the other one's going to ask or say because you just know each other. God says, if you want want to understand what I'm looking for, I'm looking for the kind of loyalty and and devotion and love that that over life means you really know me. You don't just know about me. You know me. God says, the very thing, the very thing that, that you want in a good marriage is what I want in my relationship with you. But Israel... You're not giving me that. Just like Gomer, Hosea's wife, was unfaithful, you're being unfaithful, chasing these other things and other gods. And the result is they were going to be conquered by the Assyrians and deported. Chapter 9 and other places talk about that. But turn over to chapter 11 for the sake of time chapter 11. God says, let's go down memory lane. You and your family ever go down memory lane? Can be a good thing, can't it? Sometimes. God says, let's go down memory lane. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. Oh, young love. And out of Egypt, I called my son, the exodus, Moses. I called them. I'm I'm the one who made them a nation. Verse 2, and the more they called them, the more I sent prophets and preachers and teachers. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. The more I sent my word to them, the more they listened to everybody except me. Verse 3, yet, but it is I, I'm the one who taught Ephraim to walk when he was little. I was the one that held his hand and and, and helped him learn how to stand on his own feet and walk. I'm the one that established them as a people, as a nation. I took them in my arms, but they didn't know it was me healing them this whole time. like a rebellious teenager or young adult who doesn't see all the parents are doing to love them because they're blinded by their own rebellion, blinded by their own sin. At the end of verse 4, he said, I bent down and fed them. You ever as a parent or grandparent got down on the floor to play with your kids or grandkids? You ever bent over mom or dad to put that spoon, you know, eye level, you know, open wide. Here comes the choo-choo so you can, you can feed that little one. And God, in this very picturesque language, is saying that I, God, the creator, I bent down and fed you. I got down to where you were to take care of you. God does that for us. But they just wouldn't listen. So in verse 5, he said, they will not return to the... to the land of Egypt, they won't go back to Egypt as slaves, but instead, in verse 5, Assyria, he will be their king because they refused to return to me. They just kept pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing God away until they became slaves in Assyria. And that happened in 722 B.C. Through all of it, Through all their betrayal, God loved them. Even though he was allowing them to suffer their own consequences, God loved them. And and, and one of my three or four favorite passages in the whole Bible is verses 8 and 9. Because it's such a a powerful image of God's love. Look at verse 8. God says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? Referring to the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, How how can I just let you go? How can I surrender you, O Israel? Toward the end of verse 8, my heart, my heart is turned over within me. And all my compassions are kindled I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, in spite of everything you're doing, in spite of all the pain you're causing, in spite of all the the consequences, all the judgment that's coming, he said, inside of me, God is saying, inside of me, my my love is churning and my, my hurt is churning and my anger is churning. Have you ever had all of that stuff happening inside you at the same time? And God said, All of this is going on. It's just churning and churning, being kindled. It's churning, it's churning on the inside of me. And in the end, if you will, the emotion that was the strongest, the one that won, was love. It was love. It was love. And God said, I'm not going to ever allow you to be totally destroyed. And he's talking to the nation, not just to individuals. And once the southern kingdom was conquered by Babylon a century later, when they were allowed to, to come back to the promised land, some of the descendants of this time period came back with them. And God said, I'll always have some of you as my people. Now, if you really want to understand this love of God even deeper, turn to chapter 3 as I wrap this up. Chapter 3, just two verses. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes, part of idol worship. And so I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. What he's saying is this. Gomer, Hosea's wife, had finally left him and become a prostitute. And her situation had become so dire, so bad, that she became, if you will, so deeply in debt she became a slave because there were three ways to become a slave in the ancient world. Be born one, be conquered by some army, or because you can't pay your debts. It's like in our country 300 years ago, indentured servitude, you become a slave until your debt is paid back. And that's what happened to Hosea's wife. She, She left, and she's a slave. And those days we know from all kinds of ancient writings when a slave was sold, here's what they do. They bring that slave out to the public square and strip them naked. All their clothing removed. Men, women, didn't matter. And then people would bid on them. And so here in this public market, if you will, Hosea's wife, who had left him, cheated on him, committed adultery, become a prostitute, now a slave, stands there in that public square, no clothing, and people are bidding on her to buy her as a slave. And God says, Hosea, go and buy her. And love her the way a husband is supposed to love his wife even though she's done all this. And Hosea wins the highest bid. And he puts clothing on her. And leads her from that place of humiliation to his home. What, what do you think Jesus did on the cross? When when you and me and every other person in this room, every person watching on television, every person that's lived in human history, we're guilty of sin. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There are none who are righteous, not one. The Bible says we've all gone astray and turned to his own way. We're naked before God, guilty of sin, slaves to sin, slaves to the grave, slaves to hell, slaves to Satan. we can't save ourselves we can't free ourselves and on that cross as the bible says in corinthians jesus who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of god it's as though god stepped down to earth on that cross in the body of his son and said i'm going to buy you I'm going to buy your freedom and I'm going to take you from slavery and from the mess you've created and I'm going to dress you in my righteousness. And in my Father's house, there's a place for you. There's a room for you. And when you gave, listen, listen, listen. When you gave your life to Jesus, when you gave your heart to Jesus, that's what happened to you. So why, brothers and sisters, why? Knowing that, would you ever be disloyal to Jesus? Why would you ever be unfaithful to Jesus? Why will you not listen to Jesus? Why why will you not obey Jesus? Why, Why will you not trust and have faith when he tells you what to do and how to live? Knowing that, that he loved you with that kind of love through all the unfaithfulness, through all the disobedience, through all of that. He said, I'm going to buy you back and put my clothing on you and give you my home. What a love. So here's my question. How are you treating Jesus? How? Are you treating Jesus? There are people in this room, many of us, who need to get on our knees at this altar and say, God, forgive me because I've been unfaithful. God, forgive me because I haven't trusted you. God, I repent of this sin that I know is hurting you. God, I turn from this sin and repent of this sin that is dishonoring you and bringing pain To me or pain to my loved ones. God, I'm going to get on my face and humble my heart and my soul. And I'm going to talk to you, God. I'm not going to be like the people of Israel who heard you but then didn't do anything. I'm going to hear you, God. And then I'm going to obey you. I'm going to do what I hear you saying to me. So let's in a very worshipful way, stand to her feet. No one moving, no one leaving, just standing.